Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Hey, good evening, Emmanuel Faith. It is so good to be together tonight. Oh my goodness. Uh, a thousand hallelujahs, the reason I sing. Uh, such good reminders, aren't they, of why we gather every week to remind ourselves that God is on the throne, that he is good, that he is faithful, and that it's good to be together as the people of God. Amen? If you're joining us online, really grateful that you're here as well. Uh, The Renaissance philosopher Montaigne once quipped, death has us by the scuff of the neck at every moment. I think he could have accurately added, until finally it strangles us. Since the dawn of creation, human beings have been trying to outrun and outdo and to solve the problem of death. From the epic of Gilgamesh, where the Mesopotamian king sought eternal life, to the Greek myth of Tithonus, whose wife Eos asked Zeus for the gift of eternal life for her husband. She just forgot to ask him to to grant that he was eternally young, so he was eternally old. Whoops. To Pope Innocent VIII in roughly 1492, believing that being injected with the blood of children would make him young. Um, Spoiler alert, didn't work, and it wasn't good for the children either. Spanish conquistador Juan Ponce de Leon was said to have found the fountain of youth near St. Petersburg, Florida, Uh, but he died in 1521, so I'm not so sure about the validity of his claim. We've been trying forever to live forever. It's like it's ingrained in the human experience. In 2013, Google launched Calico Labs, their biotech firm, where their explicit goal was to solve the problem of death. You may have heard that last year, Jeff Bezos, the chairman of Amazon, invested in Altus Labs, a company that was designed to rejuvenate cells and to reverse the process of aging. By 2025, the anti-aging industry will be a $610 billion industry. We are trying our best to outrun and to stave off this enemy of death. And we always have been. So, So why is that? Like, pause for a moment to ask yourself the question, why in every generation and throughout the ages, why have we kept coming back to this question of how can we live forever? What would it take for a human being to live forever? I would suggest that that has been a universal pursuit because it is a God-given design. Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 11 says that we have eternity in our hearts, meaning that we were designed to live forever forever, that that was God's design. And if you go back to the beginning of of our story and Adam and Eve, we see that Adam and Eve were put in this garden and they were designed to live forever in relationship with God. When they sinned and they broke relationship with God, they were severed from the author of life and they introduced death into God's good and perfect world. Death was never a part of God's original design. That's why it always feels unnatural. It's part of the curse of sin. In Genesis chapter three, verse 19, 
God gives a curse of sin. And part of it is that for you are of dust and to dust you shall what? Return. That one day, it wasn't his design, but it was because of their choice that one day they would die. That's why death never feels natural. I can remember as an um, elementary school kid, I experienced death for the very first time. My great-grandmother, her name was Mama Rose, at the age of 102, passed away. And I can remember my parents grieving, and I can remember grieving myself. And even though she was old and had lived a long life, there was still something very unnatural about this experience of death. Death felt wrong then and it feels wrong now and, and it, it always will because we were never designed to experience it. So what if, what if, what if this mortal wound is still visceral in our lives because God doesn't want us to let go of the desire to live forever? Like what if it always stings when somebody passes away because God wants to remind us that we were actually created and are being moved towards something better. What if the pain is there to remind us that the promise is greater than the pain and that one day God promises to extinguish once and for all our mortal enemy that we call death. That's actually what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about. If you have your Bible, would you open there with me? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you were here last week, we talked about the gospel, the euangelion, the good what? News, the good news. And remember, the gospel is good news, not good advice. I was hoping just one person would chime in, but so it goes. And in his discussion of the gospel, Paul reminds us that the gospel is that Jesus is king, sin is forgiven, death is defeated, and grace is renewing. Grace is unleashed in our world right now. And then he's going to dive into the topic of the resurrection. Now, if you remember last week, and, and none of you did, so let me remind you, um, <clears throat> Paul spent a good deal of time actually referencing people seeing Jesus after he had resurrected from the dead. Evidently, the gospel has a lot to do with resurrection and resurrection a lot to do with the gospel. And that's where Paul's gonna spend the rest of his time in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about resurrection. Now, catch this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the longest exposition, singular exposition in scripture of life after death. So if you're interested in what happens after we die, um, tune in over the next few weeks, because this section of scripture is the longest section that we have of teaching explicitly about what happens after we die. So what was going on in Corinth that caused Paul to write about the resurrection? Ah, I'm so glad you asked that. First Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. Are you there? Right on. It says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, evidently in Corinth, there were some people who were saying, what? That there's no resurrection of the dead. There were people that were uh, spreading this misinformation. We don't know anything about that, right? That there's no resurrection of the dead. Now, how important, how important is the resurrection of the dead on a scale of one to 10? 
Yeah, 10, I'd say it's an 11, right? It's, it is like off the scales important, which is what Paul's gonna unpack throughout this chapter. But let me just, let me just share with you really quickly what the Corinthians were not saying. Let, let, me, let, me say, let me just sort of frame it like this. They weren't saying that they didn't believe in life after death. They actually did believe in life after death. That they believed that they would exist as disembodied spirits forever in the quote unquote heavens. They had, many of them had been trained under Platonic philosophy and Plato was a dualist at his core. And that meant, meant something. It meant that he viewed the human person as sort of divided into two parts. That we are part spirit and the spirit is good. And that we are part matter and matter is evil. And that when we die, we will be freed from these pesky material bodies that are evil at their core. And we will be freed to be disembodied spirits forever. Now, don't answer this question out loud. Is that what Christians believe? It's what many followers of Jesus have grown to believe. But historically, that is not what Christians believe at all. In fact, this whole chapter is designed to combat the erroneous belief that we will live as disembodied spirits forever. In the scriptures, oh, um, that was Plato. Okay, Um, in the scriptures, resurrection always means a physical body, not a spiritual body. Always means a physical body, not a spiritual body. And unfortunately, Plato has has quite the magnetic pull, even in the church today. And so we're going to learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 what what the true hope of followers of Jesus was and still is today. Here's what Paul continued writing. He said this. He said, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. So, so he's, go, he's going, hey, Corinthian church, if you're willing to go with this idea that there's no resurrection, then you've got to take Jesus's resurrection off the table also. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Catch this, their faith and the validity of their faith is directly connected to whether or not Jesus walked out of the grave. Verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Are you catching Paul's point? Because he's cycling back through it. He's making it time and time again. And his point is, listen, if there is no resurrection, then we can't say that Christ was resurrected. Verse 17 or verse 16. Or sorry, 17, yeah, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is what? Futile, and you are still in your sins. Now remember, last week we said that part of the gospel is that Jesus, or Christ, has died for our what? Sins. And we defined sin last week as separation. It literally means a severing or a cutting or a dividing into parts, that which was once whole. We were created for union with God and sin has severed that union and it has cut us off from the author of life. Therefore, the wages of sin is 
death, right? So Adam and Eve experienced death because of their sin. We experienced death because of sin in general. And without resurrection from the dead, we are still in our sins. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep, with his, which is a euphemism for those who have died in Christ have what? Have perished, have perished. What happens if you still die in your sins? You perish because sin creates death in every single way. It severs us from the author of life. Now let's just pause there for a moment and let's just unpack what Paul is saying is connected to the resurrection. And he does it in a negative saying, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, Preaching is worthless. And you might go, well, even if he did rise from the grave, it is. But that's a whole other story. Preaching is worthless. We're lying about God. Our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. And we're eventually going to perish. Now, is this an important issue? Yes. Yes. Verse 19. He says, and if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're to be we are of all people most to be pitied. Have you ever heard somebody say something like, um, well, even if Christianity isn't true, it's still the best way to live. So even if it's not true, you should still believe it. Have you ever like somebody say something like that? And Paul would go, no, 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 no. No, if it's not true, we are to be the most pitied of all people that walk the planet. If Jesus didn't walk out of the grave, then we have based our life on an absolute lie. Do you get the picture? That faith without the resurrection is like trying to make a cake without flour. It's like trying to fly a kite with no wind. It's like trying to plug a light into the wall with no power running through your house. It's like trying to build a house without a foundation. Without the resurrection, faith is futile. It's useless and it crumbles. It crumbles. And he's saying, listen, and, and we would be people that have hope in this life, but it's not gonna do us a whole lot of good eternally. Ah, ah. But our hope is an eternal hope because the grave has been conquered. That's his point, that we have an eternal hope because the grave has been conquered. By eternal hope, I mean the kind of hope that never lets you go and never lets you down. Hope is the confidence of future good. Eternal hope is the confidence of future good eternally forever, that God will continue to be good on his promises, both now and forevermore. And this kind of rightly grounded hope leads to a flourishing life. And so Paul wants to unpack that. He wants to nuance it. And over the next few verses, he's going to tell us what to expect, when to expect it, and how the resurrection should impact our lives today. You ready? He starts off by painting two pictures and making one point. Here's the first picture, verse 20. But if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead and that's been his whole point, he has, spoiler alert, he walked out of the grave, okay? He's the first fruits, everybody say first fruits, of those who have fallen asleep, of those who have died. Now, First fruits doesn't mean a whole lot to us, probably. Um, in fact, if you were to type it in a Word document or a Google Doc, it's going to have the red squiggly line underneath it because it doesn't even recognize it as a word, okay? 
But for the early Jewish followers of God and for the followers of Jesus who came out of a Jewish background, first fruits would have meant something significant. It was one of the feasts that the people of God, the Israelites celebrated every single year. And it was a feast in the spring. And it was a feast where they would go and they would take one of the very first sheaves of barley that had started to grow and started to come out of the ground. The priest would take that sheaf of barley and would wave it before God as a way of saying, God, you have given us one of these and we are confident that you will give us a great harvest. First fruits was, uh, this isn't the only of its kind. It's just the first of its kind. Now, any guesses what day Jesus walked out of the grave? It was the feast of, everybody say it, first fruits. So catch this, catch this. The priest is waving a sheave of barley saying, God, thank you for the first of its kind. It's not the last of its kind, just the first. We believe that there are many more just like it to come. And the resurrected Jesus walks by him and goes, you have no idea how true that is. Come on, how beautiful is that picture? You can read about first fruits in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 through 14. But the picture that we get that Paul's painting is that we are going to get in line just like Jesus. He was the prototype, he was the first of his kind, but not the last of his kind. Just like he was raised from the dead, we will one day be raised from the dead also. Embodied life is our eternal destiny. Jesus' resurrected body was physical. It was material. He could go up to his his disciples and say, "Um, touch the scars on my hand and, and put your hand in my side. He could say to them, hey, you're having fish for breakfast, which is, I guess uh, you can do that back then. I wouldn't suggest it now, but um, fish for breakfast. He's like, cook me up some of that. I'm hungry. But he could also teleport and walk through walls. So I don't know about you, but sign me up man, sign me up. The scriptures say that we will have the same kind of body that Jesus did. More on that in the next few weeks. But listen to the second picture that Paul paints and he makes the exact same point. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so as in Christ all shall be made alive. And so what Paul's saying is, listen, um, you are a part of a family tree. And in Christ, we have a new family tree. Um, I I just did uh, this 23andMe genetic testing. Has anybody done this? I just got it back yesterday. And the results I got were, you are white. Um, (laughs) Shockingly so, in fact, it's like 99% Western European. It wasn't all that exciting. Uh, But see, Paul's not so much concerned about our ethnic family tree as he is our spiritual family tree. You are a part of a spiritual family tree. You are a part of a spiritual family tree. Every single one of us is. And the truth of the matter, friends, is that all of us were born into Adam's family tree. 
We have a sinful nature, just like our first ancestor. We've all rebelled against our good father. Listen to the way that Paul puts it in Romans chapter five, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and what? Death through sin, because the wages of sin is death. And so death spread to all men because all sin. And in Adam, because of sin, we experience death. However, Paul draws this parallel and he says, yeah, but but in Christ, we experience life and life to the full. I think at first glance, if you read verse 22, as in Adam, all die. So as in Christ, all shall be made alive. At first glance, we could get the idea of like universalism that everybody is somehow saved. That's not the point that Paul is making. He's already told us in verse 17 that he's writing to those who are, quote, in Christ. I think verse 22 could read maybe a little bit more accurately, in Christ, all who are in Christ will be made alive. So how do we get, quote, unquote, in Christ? Well, we were born into Adam and we are grafted into Christ by faith. And that's why Jesus would say to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is what? Born again. We're born into Adam. We're born again into Jesus by faith. He cannot see the kingdom of God. And here's why this is so important, you guys. Here's why this is so important. Because your family tree determines your eternal destiny. You're either in Adam and will experience eternal death, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 12 and 1 Corinthians 15, or you are in Christ and will experience resurrected life eternal. But I just want us to pause for a moment, okay? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to just rub your hands together for a moment. I want you to just touch your arm, touch your arm. Put your hands on your legs. Like just, just feel, um, uh, do-si-do your partner. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Um, you have a body. You have a body. And you will throughout eternity. We will be embodied beings throughout eternity. This is the hope that early followers of Jesus had. Not that we would be disembodied spirits in heaven forever, but that we would be resurrected with new glorified bodies to walk on a new and restored earth. The first fruits, Jesus is the first fruits, but there's more to come, you and me. Now, this is such a great and and significant hope, but here's what was happening in Corinth. They were burying followers of Jesus who died, And it really looked like they were staying dead. Like they were hoping for resurrection, but it sure looked like their bones stayed in the ground. It only took Jesus three days to get out of the ground. Why is it taking these other believers so long? And so they started to lose hope for resurrection. So Paul goes on and he wants to tell them when they can expect resurrection. He doesn't want God's perceived quote unquote delay to bring about their doubt. So he writes verse 23. But each in his own, what? Order. Meaning there's an order to this. Christ, the first fruits, then, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now notice, then here, 
That's a long time, isn't it? The amount of time in between Christ walking out of the grave, the first fruits, and him coming back, it's at least 2,000 years, right? That's a long period of time. But he's making this point. We can expect resurrection, the resurrection of our bodies when Christ returns. And what Paul's doing here is he's starting to lay out an incomplete and a a sort of rudimentary timeline for end times or, or the end of things. And I want you to sort of get this because I think a lot of people, we get it wrong. See, here's the, the timeline so far. Jesus' resurrection, which happened about 2,000 plus years ago. Eventually, if you and I don't live until Jesus comes back, we will die. The statistics are wild about that, okay? At which point the question I think becomes, well, okay, if we haven't been resurrected yet and we die, where are those people who have not been resurrected yet and who died in the Lord? Great question. They are in heaven. They're in heaven. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse eight says that those who have died in the Lord are absent from the body, meaning they do not have their physical body, but they are present with whom? The Lord. Yeah, people who died in Jesus are in heaven, away from their body, but with the Lord. You can read about this in Revelation chapter four and five. That's what's going on right now. They are currently disembodied spirits in heaven, but they will not be that way forever. As N.T. Wright once quipped, heaven is great, but it's not the end of the world. Have you ever heard somebody say heaven is our home? Not our eternal home. Our eternal home is on a renewed earth in a resurrected and glorified body. And then, and then Jesus returns and we have the resurrection of believers. Our final state will be as people who inhabit physical bodies, just like Jesus's glorified body. When he appears, we will be like him. And here's the point that Paul's making. The point that Paul is making is that resurrection will be realized when Christ returns. And he doesn't want the Corinthians to get confused or to start to doubt because people who have died stayed in the ground. He's going, that only happens for now. It will not happen forever. So I don't know who you've had to say goodbye to. And I don't know what kind of loved ones in the Lord you've had to bury And I don't know what kind of pain you're carrying and what kind of diagnosis you've received. And I don't know what's going on in your life right now. I just know that because of Jesus, we have an eternal hope, life everlasting because of what Jesus has done for that day, for that day. Uh, But Paul essentially says, okay, but, but wait, there's more, okay? There's more. Verse 24, here's what he says. Then, and we already know that then can be a long period of time. Then comes the what? The end. And in the Greek, it's this word telos. Everybody say telos. And it doesn't mean like the end of time. It means the goal or the fulfillment or the completion of a task. Then the task will be completed. When when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and 
power. Now just sort of put that off to the side for a moment because he's gonna come back to it. This whole idea of Jesus delivering the kingdom to his father, we'll come back to that. Verse 25, for he, Christ, must reign until, which means that he's reigning right now, yes? He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And this idea of your enemies being under your feet is an idiomatic way of saying your enemies have been conquered. They will not be making a comeback. They are done forever. Have you ever seen one of those movies or read one of those books where um, the antagonist was gone and defeated and then they showed back up? right? Like what Paul's saying is that will never happen with Jesus's enemies after he returns. And he says, the last enemy to be destroyed is who? Death. And I don't know about you, but I love sort of the poetic way that death is personified as the great antagonist in this drama and narrative of scripture, that one day death himself will be taken down. So here's Paul's timeline. He just added to it. Jesus' resurrection, your death, you're in heaven until Jesus returns and the resurrection of believers happens. And then Jesus comes back. He conquers his enemies and he finally and completely defeats death forever, forever. And I don't know if you caught this, but the enemies that Jesus is taking down the enemies of our, the powers and authorities and rulers are the exact same enemies that Paul calls us to war against by faith right now in this life. It's why he wrote to the Ephesians and said, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers. Do those sound familiar? It's the exact same language he's using in 1 Corinthians 15 over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The enemies that Jesus defeats in the end are the same enemies that war against our soul right now. They're also the same enemies that Jesus disarmed on the cross. Colossians chapter two, Paul wrote, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And see, after his return, Jesus will destroy the enemies that he disarmed on the cross. And the last great enemy to go down is death himself. And friends, that is, I don't know about you, but that gives such great hope to me. It stirs such great hope that one day death will be no more. And I think it does at least two things in us. It should free us from the fear of death. I know we will experience death most likely in this life, but death, while it's a reality, is not a finality. The book of Hebrews would say it like this, that through death, through Jesus's death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. The devil's greatest power is the power of death to hold it over people, to cause people to fear. And, and they'll go on to say, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, in slavery to the fear of death. 
And what Paul's saying is that because of what Jesus has done, we don't need to fear death anymore, that we can be like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who runs towards his death in the gallows shouting, oh death, you are a supreme festival on the pathway to Christian freedom. That's baller. Like that, like that is, that, like, and that's the confidence that Jesus followers have had throughout the ages. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Come on. That we don't need to fear death today because of what Jesus has done. Second implication is that when we are resurrected, it will be to life eternal because the great enemy of death has been put down forever. Death was introduced by Adam, conquered through the resurrection, the cross and resurrection of Jesus, and will be finally destroyed when Jesus returns. Somebody say amen. Amen. But we know that that isn't entirely the end of the story. Because remember that Paul made this point that he, Jesus, would hand over the kingdom to God the Father. So we don't only see the destruction of death, we also see the triumph of life. Verse 27, reads like this. And try to track with Paul, this is a complex argument that he's making. He says, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he's accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Now, I don't know if you're tracking here. If you're not, welcome to the party. It's hard to understand what Paul's saying. And it's partially because he's inserting into this argument about resurrection, a direct quote from Psalm chapter eight. So if you have your Bible open, you can just flip over there with me or you can just follow along on the screen. But in order to catch what Paul's saying, which is significant, we need to understand what's going on in Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, the psalmist wrote, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now, typically when we read this phrase, son of man, we think of whom? Jesus. It was one of his favorite phrases for himself. But the psalmist is not referring to Jesus here. It's called a Hebrew parallelism. He's just simply saying man or humankind. What is a human being that you're mindful of him? Great question. And the son of man or, or, or humankind that you would care for him. Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion. Over the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet. Does that sound familiar? It should on two accounts. First, the psalmist is just giving us a poetic description of what happens in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Where God creates human beings and he gives them rule and dominion and authority over his creation over the work of his hands. And so when Paul quotes this, he's sort of echoing back this creation mandate where man and woman were given together the call and charge to have dominion over God's good creation under his rulership. Okay, so the right question to ask is, what in the world does any of that have to do with the resurrection. Turns out 
everything, everything. Because Paul's point is that in the resurrection, Jesus has fulfilled the ultimate human vocation, that he is the second Adam. He's the greater Adam, that where the first Adam failed, the second Adam has triumphed, and that God's good and gracious design is back on track in Jesus. That when Jesus is victorious over his enemies, human beings are back in their rightful place, having dominion and rule over God's creation, the exact way that God originally designed things to work. And you've got to keep that in mind that Paul's referring to Jesus's human vocation if we're going to understand what he says next. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. God's design of giving human beings rule and dominion under his guidance and under his kingdom is once again being realized in Jesus. He is bringing us back to the garden, as it were. And Jesus fully participates in our humanity. It doesn't make him any less God. It just makes him fully human. So when he gives the kingdom to his father, then human beings are put back under God as their king, so that they can then have rule and dominion over the things he has called them to have rule and dominion over. Here's the point. One day, one day, death will be destroyed and God's design will be restored. You guys, this is so much bigger than, gosh, if you say a prayer um, and have faith in Jesus that one day when you die, you'll go to heaven. Like that's part of the story. The story is just so much bigger than that. That one day God will restore his broken creation, his creation that longs for its redemption will one day be put back together. One day God will put the worlds to right and we can know that he will be good on his promise. Why? Because Jesus walked out of the grave and in walking out of the grave, he started the timeline for all of this to take place. Here's what the timeline looks like now that Jesus was resurrected from the, from the dead. One day you will die and you will go to heaven. And when Jesus returns, your body will be resurrected if you're a believer in him. Jesus will conquer his enemies and defeat death once and for all. He will set up his kingdom and then he will hand the kingdom over to his father. And then God will be all in all. Did you catch that last phrase at the end of verse 28? God will be all in all, meaning that God's design will be back on track. Somebody say amen. Oh, for that glorious day. So um, where does Paul go from there? (laughs) I mean, he's taking us to the mountaintop. Now he's going to take us to who cares on an everyday basis. What do we do with this today? He goes and he says this, verse 29. (laughs) Otherwise, What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? What in the world? Like, Paul, come on, man. Like, you've just unpacked this massive theology and invite us us into the, just these mysteries of the universe. And now you bring up being baptized on behalf of the dead? Like, what's going on here? And 
Uh, there's not a lot of consensus. Uh, some people would suggest that some Gnostic uh, beliefs had sept, seeped into the church and that people were doing proxy baptisms, meaning that they were baptized on behalf of somebody who had already died so that their faith could sort of be passed on. That's not a scriptural idea. And Paul does not affirm this as a good thing. He just simply says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, why do you care and why are you baptizing on behalf of people who had died? Now, I think the way that I, I, I understand this now after studying it is I think the picture that Paul's painting is that everybody who's baptized is dead. They are dead in their transgressions and sins and they are raised to walk in what? New life, right? And I think Paul's point is the whole picture of baptism presupposes resurrection. And so if you don't believe in resurrection, then why are you doing baptisms? That's one way to understand it. Verse 30, he says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest brothers by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if by humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts in Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It's a quote from Epicurean philosophers in Paul's day. And they simply meant if there's no resurrection, let's just live life to the full. YOLO, it's the original YOLO, okay? That was their point. Verse 33, he says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good, ruins good morals. It's actually a quote from a Greek playwright named Meander. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. And Paul's saying, listen, our entire outlook has shifted because of our conviction about resurrection. We can fight the wild beasts in Ephesus. We don't need to drink every last drop of this life, suck it for all of its worth, all that it's worth, because we believe that we have eternity in Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I love that Paul goes from the grandest scope of restoration of all things to how we eat and how we drink and how we live our everyday life. See, what we believe about the future shapes the way that we live in the present. And eternity is not about escaping our humanity. It's about the redemption of our humanity. It's about God restoring and making all things new. So um, tomorrow is Halloween, and I didn't plan this message to go along with Halloween. It just sort of fell that way. And I'm sure you're going to see all sorts of costumes out there as people maybe come to your house or your apartment or you're out and about. And my guess is you'll see a few people dressed up as a skeleton. And I hope, I hope that as you see that picture of dry bones, like don't say this to them. It might get awkward and it might scare them. Okay. Um, but I hope that something in the back of your mind or in your heart just starts to rise up and you look at them and you go, yeah, one day, one day, if the Lord doesn't come back before I die, one day, this body will be in the ground. One day, I will breathe my last breath on this earth round one. But it won't be the last breath I breathe. 
that one day also my dead bones will rise, that I will be clothed in a physical, material, but glorified and resurrected body that will be clothed in immortality and I will live forever with God. That's where this story is going, friends. That one day the dwelling place of God will be with human beings once again, that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no more mourning, no more crying, and no more pain for the old order of things will pass away and the new will come. Friends, behold, he is making all things New, And we know that he will be good on his promises because he walked out of the grave. That means we can run towards our grave with the same confidence that Bonhoeffer had. Oh, death, you are a supreme festival on the road to my Freedom. May we live with that same kind of confidence, friends. We don't need a 610 billion dollar anti-aging industry in order to give us hope. We've got a resurrected Jesus and an empty tomb and a promise that he will one day restore all things. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. So Lord, I pray that that hope would sink deeper and deeper into our bones tonight that it might give birth to an eternal hope, confident of eternal future good, because you're a good king, you're a gracious Lord, you love us and you have already conquered sin and death and evil. One day you will destroy them completely. You're already victorious, but one day you will rule and reign without any competition. We cannot wait for that day. We cannot wait for that day. And Lord, as we experience pain in this life, may it point us to the promise that you have redeemed, that you are resurrected and that you are renewing all things. Fill us with hope tonight, not just hope, fill us with eternal hope tonight because the grave has been conquered, amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.